Amen. Welcome to Faith Church. We are thrilled that you are here. You are in the right place today. You may not know that or think that or wondering, uh, but you are. And uh, today, God's got a word for you. And uh, for those of you that are part of our church, you, you know this is not our normal rhythm of service. It's all okay. God is still God, and He can still move when things move a little bit out of order. Amen? It'll be all right. And so uh, hang tight. We, what we really wanted to be able to do is kind of end our service in a special way uh, with communion and some worship and uh, kind of a moment where we get to just have some time with God. And so looking forward to that and that uh, you can kind of prepare your hearts for that. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want to read some scripture this morning as we kind of get things rolling. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, you can turn there if you have a printed version of Scripture. Just open it up a couple pages and you're there. Uh, if you have a digital uh, phone or device with you, you can log on to the Central Hub, faithchurchks.org. Click on Sermon Notes, and you can follow along with all of the Scriptures as well. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 16. Uh, read a couple verses, and then I'm going to read some more in Genesis chapter 3. This is what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free uh, to eat from any tree. Everybody say any tree. Any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Must not eat of that tree. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Skipping to chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which isn't what God said at all. I mean, isn't that the reality? Don't you understand that God is a cosmic killjoy, doesn't want you to have fun, and he gives all of these wonderful things, and there's so much fun to be had in this garden, but you can't have any of it because God is all about rules. And God is more concerned with what you do. And it's all these trees. You can't eat from any of them because God is holding out on you. He's withholding it from you. Don't you realize that that's how God treats his friends, limiting every area of their life? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And if you touch it, you will die. That's not what God said either. It's only a partial truth. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Don't you know? God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll have true enlightenment. Don't you know that if you get a few more facts and figures and understanding, you'll reach true enlightenment. If you could take one more course and further your education, and if you really start thinking for yourself, then you don't follow the rules and whatever people tell you, and you just think for yourself, you'll find true enlightenment. And that's really what God is holding out from you. He knows that if you eat from this tree, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to see like he sees. You're going to be like God yourselves. All because you know right and wrong. You know good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for, I mean, gaining wisdom. I mean, don't we all want to be smarter? 
I mean, after all, don't we all want to know some things? After all, don't we all want to make good choices and have logic and reasoning as our friend and not be idiots? Of course. Why wouldn't you want to? The fruit's going to help you do that. It must be good. And when she saw that, she took and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, sitting back, saying nothing, doing whatever she said, laying down, and he ate some too. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God. They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Today I want to bring a message to you entitled, The Tree of Knowledge. The tree of knowledge. Do we have any Jeopardy fans in the house? Any fans of Jeopardy? A few of you who feel smart enough to watch such a show. Wonderful. I I recently read an article this week of a man uh, by the name of James Holzhauer. He is on a 19-day winning streak uh, at the time of this article earlier this week in Jeopardy. He had won, check this out, one million. $426,330 thus far. Of course, he was still several games shy from the record set in 2004 of 74 straight Jeopardy game wins. It's amazing. Knowledge is something that we have so much of that we just turned it into trivia and game shows. Did you know that there are 171,476 entries in Webster's Dictionary with an additional 9,500 other like sub-derivative entries of the main 171,476 entries. Webster was so smart, he just had to write it all down for us. His knowledge base was amazing. In fact, we have such a craving for knowledge in our day and age. We have such a a drive to know things and to be smart and to be intellectual. We know so many things. We have our own little category that we call random facts. Random facts. They don't help you in life. They don't really matter in life. They're just random facts that somebody decided it was important to know. And we cram them into our brains. Random facts like, for instance, the average person will spend six months of their life waiting for red lights to turn green. Can't do anything about it. You just know that you're going to spend six months of your life at a red light. Congratulations. I mean, legally, you can't do anything about that fact. Did you know that a bolt of lightning contains enough energy to toast 100,000 slices of bread? That's a lot of carbs. So if you ever catch lightning, go ahead and toast some bread, I guess. I don't know. You can hear, did you know that you can hear a blue whale's heartbeat from two miles away? Did you know also that the inventor of the Frisbee, when he died, turned into a Frisbee? Like, had his remains back into a Frisbee. Talk about dying for one's work. 
And did you know that instead of saying cheese before a picture in the Victorian age, they said prunes because they didn't think that you should smile in photographs. And so by saying prunes, their face would look like they just ate some prunes. Random facts. Can't do nothing with them. They're just tucked away in our knowledge base. Now, full disclosure, I'm not really what you would consider a smart guy. I don't really consider myself an intellectual. I think if I remember correctly, I scored like an 18 on the ACT. Nothing fancy, nothing... I wasn't getting scholarship offers. (laughs) If you look at it from a biblical perspective, I don't really fall into the category of the Apostle Paul. I think I'm more the talking donkey variety. I like things on the low shelf, put, put the cookies there where everybody can reach them. That's just kind of who I am. That's my life. But it doesn't really matter whether you consider yourself super smart and intellectual or if you consider yourself not so smart and not so intellectual, the pitfall and the result of the tree of knowledge comes for all of us. The result and the pitfall of knowledge comes for all of us. See, we have this insatiable thirst to know more, to grab more. And we turn this knowledge into our own self-governing life where we look at creating knowledge that helps us control our life rather than understanding a God that we worship with all of our life. I believe that God did indeed create us with this incredible capacity for knowledge and understanding. The brain is an amazing part of your body. God gave it to you and he gave it to you for a reason. And it's true, there are times I wish people would use their brain more. The truth of the matter is that we have this knowledge that thirsts us, that drives us to where we want to control our knowledge and be controlled by logic and reasoning rather than trusting in a sovereign God. See, God desired that we would have a relationship with him. God desired that we would worship him. God desires that we would sink after him. He didn't desire that he would become just a subject that we teach and learn about but rather a relationship that we encounter and we experience every day of our lives. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look back at this story in Genesis chapter 3, and I want us to understand some of the results of the tree of knowledge, the good, the evil. I want to talk about it, look at it, examine it. And there are four things that I wanted to share today that I think will help us as we try and discern and discover how can we live our lives freely? How can we have freedom in our lives? How can we go beyond our past and being stuck in the things that we know into a relationship with God that moves us into a freedom and an encounter with him that really brings us life? The first thing that I wanted to to point out today is that the fruit is knowledge. When they ate of the fruit, what they ate of was knowledge. Now, knowledge isn't bad. I said it before, God God gave us the brain. I mean, it was a gift from him to us. Knowledge isn't bad. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1 says this. Now, we know that we all possess knowledge, it says. But knowledge puffs up. And it is love that builds up. God is love. 
And when all we do is grab knowledge without a surrender to God, then our knowledge builds up pride and it puffs us up in arrogance, demanding things, judging things, looking at things. But when we grab a hold of who God is and he interacts in our lives, then love becomes the filter through which we process all of our knowledge. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 2. It says, in whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, so in Christ are hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So so in Christ is knowledge. In Jesus Christ are hidden treasures of wisdom and understanding. That they're a part of Christ. So, So knowledge isn't bad. So when it comes to knowledge, you need to understand that your motives matter. Your motives matter. Solomon, when he became king at a young age, he was kind of overwhelmed and He was seeking God and God came to Solomon in a really cool way and said, hey, Solomon, ask me for anything, right? Ask me, ask me anything, Solomon, I'll do it because I loved your father, David. I want to honor him and the the promises that I've made to him and the covenant that I made with David. So Solomon asked for anything and I'm, I'm going to do it for you. Whatever you want, Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge so that he could rule God's people in a way that would honor God. He wanted to rule righteous. His motives were in the right place, and God granted it to him. And he became known as the wisest man who ever walked the earth. He became so wise, though, his knowledge puffed him up, and he started controlling his own life and becoming his own God. And so his gift drew him away because his motives eventually got soured. Motives matter. The source of your wisdom matters. James 1 says that if you lack wisdom... You can ask God and he'll give you wisdom. Is your wisdom, is your knowledge a part of God, from God and through God? Or are you doing it on your own? What's the source of your knowledge? Is it human understanding and reasoning and logic? Or is it coming from a deeper place, a truer place from God who knows everything, birthing and breathing life into who you are? See, it matters. I guess, I guess the question that we really have to ask ourselves is this. Is the knowledge and the facts and the things that we're learning glorifying ourselves so that we can be smart, we can be right, we can prove others wrong, we can win arguments? Or is our knowledge helping us glorify God more truly and purely? Which one is it for you? Your, your motives, it matters. Knowledge should help us glorify God in everything. And so the fruit from the, the tree was actual knowledge. It was knowledge. Second thought today is this, that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was deadly. It was deadly. See, when they ate from the tree, something in them died. God said, hey, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. Not if you touch it. Not if you look at it, not if you think about it, not if you're tempted by it. If you eat it, you'll die. They ate of the fruit and in them spiritually they died. And we'll look at some of the results of that spiritual death here in a little bit. But they died. Something died on the inside of them. In fact, we don't really have any reason to believe based on the story that we have in Genesis, that God ever intended for them to die physically. That, that's why when you fast forward through the Bible and you get to the book of Revelation, in the end we win. Holla, spoiler alert. Right? Like, like we win, God sets everything right, and he comes back to it, and he says, you can eat from the tree of life and live forever. See, God wanted them to eat from the tree of life, but they ate from the tree of knowledge. 
they, they gave up life everlasting for knowledge ever increasing. And, and so they began to die not only spiritually, but their physical bodies began to taste decay. That's why your human body is decaying. Every breath you take, you're getting closer to death. You're welcome. Right? It, the longer we live, the more we feel it. I had a birthday last week. Every once in a while, I feel the effects of said age. It happens. Happens to all of us, right? Because there's something that dies, your physical body cannot live forever in this state. Why is there sickness and disease? And we want to knowledge it all away. The reality is there is sin, there is death, there is sickness because they ate from the tree of knowledge. And sin entered the world and there was death. Listen here, friends. You were made in the image and the likeness and the reflection of God. You were not made to be God. And when they ate of the fruit, they thought they were going to be God. But they weren't. See, knowledge, the reason why this tree of knowledge produces such death is because we begin to live based on knowledge, which is often in direct opposition of trust. Think about it. The opposite of faith is not fear. It's not worry and it's not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Because what you are certain of, you don't need faith for. We can have confidence in Christ. But it is in our certainty, in our quest for knowledge of being so sure in our mind. That is in that place that we are now in direct opposition for faith. See, the tree that begins to die on the inside, that the fruit that is so deadly for us is the fact that we would rather gain our own knowledge to control our lives versus trusting God to take care of our lives. And knowledge begins to decay and there's something that dies on the inside of us when we think knowledge is what's going to help us control our lives, but we're no longer trusting God to take care of our lives. See, the result of Adam's actions gives us an awareness of our own sin and imperfections. And so, the fruit is deadly. Second, third thought. Not only was the fruit knowledge, not only was the fruit deadly, the fruit from the tree is consumed. They took and they ate, chewed it swallowed it, digested it. It, it, it was consumed on the inside. It, it worked its way from the outside to the inside. It consumed them on the inside. Have, have you ever been, uh, heard the phrase, this is just eating me alive? Can't sleep at night because the thoughts of what you did or didn't do, the thoughts of the interaction, the thoughts of the failure, the thoughts of the pressure of life, the thing that's worrying your mind, it's in your mind, and you can't get it out of your mind, and it just eats at you. Ever been there? Why? Because the fruit of knowledge is eating away at you. It's consumed. It's something that we consume. We eat from the wrong tree, and we consume it. We digest it. It comes into us. And the reality is those things that we ingest, we actually end up living out. 
those things that you're digesting all the time, those shows that you're watching, the music that you maybe are consuming, the, the attitudes and the gossip that you're listening to, and the things that you're reading, it's all things that you're consuming, and it translates into how you're living. We're going to talk more about that next week, because the same thing that happens at the tree of knowledge also has to happen at the tree of life. See, the reversal of this or the opposite or the shadow side of this in the tree of life is that if we can consume what God's word says, life begins to come out of us. That's how we transform our life to living out God's life is we renew our mind. We meditate. We chew on. We we digest what God wants to do in us, how good God is. And the more we digest and think about the goodness of God, the more we can trust God. And so we can live based from a place of trust rather than a base of knowledge in our own self-arrogant confidence, but more on that next week. The, the, reality, the reality of it all is, friends, that the fruit gets consumed, and when it gets consumed, we begin to live, we, we live it out. Here's the last one, number four, and then we're going to make some application and come to a point of response. Not as the fruit knowledge, not as the fruit deadly, not as the fruit something that gets consumed that we think about and we bring into our lives, this knowledge that we seek after, grab, 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 grab. But, but, but here's, here's the last thought. The fruit, it causes separation. Causes separation. Go, go back to verse 8 and 9. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They, they separated themselves from where God was at. They, they hid. They, they ran away. They hid. They hid. Maybe you've been hiding. Maybe some of the things that are in your life, you've been living based on your own knowledge, your own insight, your own understanding, and you've been hiding. The sins that you know you, you've been eaten away at you, the things that you've done wrong, you were so afraid to even walk into church today because you thought you'd get struck down by lightning the minute you walked into this place. And something in you is eating away at you and you're hiding and you're running and you're confused and you're alone and you're wondering, why has God left me? And you are, are hiding in that place. The reality is God isn't hiding from you. You've been hiding from God. And the result of the tree is they separated. They hid themselves. They thought they were naked and they tried to cover it up. Ah, they grabbed leaves and tried to like put them in proper places. And they're like, oh, can't, can't do this. And what a terrible attempt at covering things up they did. Like, I, I can't imagine that that was a comfortable way to live. Leaves and such. No thanks. But they did what they thought they had to do to survive because they heard God coming and they hid. They hid. They, they separated themselves from God. Listen, God does not separate himself from you because of your sin. No. Often we are driven by shame to hide and we remove ourselves from where God is. But friends, I came to tell you some good news. God is looking for you. God's pursuing you. God is asking, hey, where are you? Where are you? Oh, hey, where'd you go? Where are you? Why are you hiding? Where are you hiding? Where are you? Where are you? Some, some of you are here today because God has been looking for you. <laughs> he was looking for you so much that he sent a friend to invite you to come to church. And so you're here today because somebody invited you, but really it's God looking for you. Some of you saw 
on Facebook an ad that says you belong and you're like, I don't know, maybe. And you showed up here and you weren't sure, but you're here now. You saw that Facebook ad because God's been looking for you. He's not mad at you. He's looking for you. He's searching after you. He's coming after you. Some of you have been driving by the highway for months now. And you're wondering why in the world is that old bar full of cars now? There must be some good stuff happening in there. And you figured out that maybe I ought to go check it out. Why? Because God is looking for you. And you walked in here and you're like, this doesn't smell like it used to smell. The bar's still there, but it doesn't look, it doesn't sound the same. Doesn't smell the same. Nope. God's been asking where you are. God's been asking where you are. But the problem is you've been separating yourself. You've been hiding from God. You've been running from God. You've been trying to cover up and compensate all of the things. But God is not mad and he hasn't separated himself from you. Friends, God may not be a fan of your sin. Hear me. But he's not afraid of your sin. He may not be a fan of sin, but he's not afraid of it. We talk about the holiness of God. Sin can't stand the God can't presence. Sin can't be in the presence of God. It's not actually scriptural. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, came to the earth and he hung out as a friend of sinners. God's not afraid of your sin. He's not a fan of it, but he's not afraid of it. God doesn't have some cooties when it comes to your sin. He's not like OCD and germophobic and cynophobic. Like, oh my gosh, they've got to get their act clean before they can be. We just can't this because I just, I can't touch you. I can't hug you. I can't be around you. I just, oh, you got to clean up. You smell. It's awful. Clean it up. Get fixed. And and we treat people that way. Like, oh, you got to get this all cleaned up and then you can come to God. Baloney. Almost said another word, but this is church. Eat from the tree of life today. God's not hiding. He's not sick of your sin. He doesn't look at you in his stomach turn. He came looking for you today. He came looking for you today. He knows you've been separating yourself. He knows you've been removing yourself from him. He knows that that what's really been going on is you've been hiding in shame and playing the victim. See, because when you eat from the tree, the the reason that, that the fruit separates us is because... Shame shows up and starts shouting in our lives and we start playing the victim card and just like Adam and Eve did. Well, it was her fault. It was his fault. It was the snake's fault. And they start pointing fingers and playing the victim. And we do that in our lives with our faults, with our failures, with our missteps, with our own sin. We hide in shame and we play the victim card. But God came looking for us. Friends, the result of shame is, it's pretty massive. Let let me read you, help help, help you understand what shame does to you. Shame begins, causes you to begin covering up with religion so that you become focused on works. Look at all the good things that I do. Look at how I post about the right laws and the right things and look at all this. But our attitudes and our hearts and everything is a mess. Marriages are falling apart. We can't speak kindly to nobody. We're a mess and we're trying to cover up by distracting over here 
and we put on the church face and we put on the things all because shame is shouting at us. We begin to lie, begin to deceive, and we begin to live out a false sense of pride because shame is calling the shots. Shame is whispering, telling us we've got to hide. Shame is telling you you can't do it. And so we lie and we deceive and we cover up and we live with this false sense of pride. And then we start making promises that we can't keep. I prom- I'll never do it again, God. I'll never touch the substance again. I'll never walk into that place again. I'll never text her again. I'll never look at that on the internet again. I'll never lash out in anger again. And we make these promises that we can't keep. Why? Because shame is shouting at us. Got to do something. Got to do something. Got to do something. And it's shouting and it's shouting and it's shouting. We get our, start getting our self-worth from things that we do. We begin to have an inability to come to a place of honesty with God because we believe we have no true value. And we consider ourselves worthless and unlovable all because of shame. All because of shame. And we begin concentrating on our sins instead of concentrating on our Savior. Shame will make you focus more on your sins and focusing on what Jesus did to pay for your sins. Why? Because shame is shouting at you. And then because we're eating from the wrong tree, not only do we hide in shame, but we start voicing and we live our lives as a victim. We start noticing other people's sins, but never our own. We start saying things like, well, if, if my wife wasn't so manipulative... I wouldn't be so angry. And if, and if they would be more kind, I wouldn't be so rude. If they would own up to their junk and mistakes, I wouldn't have to tell them the truth. I'm just being honest. No, you're being a jerk. And we point and we blame and we criticize. And if my kids were this, then I wouldn't be. And if they would get it together, then I couldn't respond this way. And this, if that, if this, then that. And it's never about what we've done. It's always about us reacting to what they've done. That's called playing the victim. Teenagers, if your teachers are always wrong and you're always the one student that they hate, you're playing the victim. Stop. All the teachers just said, amen. And all the parents said, thank God. (laughs) Quit playing the victim. That's a result of eating from the wrong tree. We begin to excuse and condemn ourselves saying, well, I've just always been this way. It's just my personality. I can't help it. I've always been. Mama's always been. Granddaddy's always been. It's just a part of my life, a part of my story. I can't do nothing about it. It's the result of this action that happened. If I wouldn't have been abused, then I wouldn't be. And we start playing the victim. And we'll say that we never can change and we'll never be good enough and we'll never this as if it depends on us. And God's coming to us and saying, hey, where are you? Where where are you? Where, Where are you? Because we've been separating ourselves and we didn't need to. We don't need to. If you you don't hear anything else, hear this. In your life, I came to declare to you today, stop running from God and start running to God. Don't run from God. Run to God. 
this week, two ways, really practical. See, because you don't have to continue staying stuck in the cycle of blame and self-condemnation. You don't have to stay stuck in the cycle of shame and playing the victim. You can break free from that cycle. That fruit can be destroyed. Its effects eliminated, flushed out of your system, if you will. How? Two things. This week, real practical. Ask God first. Before you make a decision on your own, before you buy something, before you go somewhere, before you put an appointment on your calendar, before you do anything, just ask God first. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord. When you ask God first, you're recognizing his lordship in your life. You're just putting him first. Ask God first. With everything in your life, just ask God first this week. And in so doing, you are reminding yourself, God is sovereign, I am not. I trust him to care for me, not me to control my life. Ask God first. Ask God first. Secondly, real practical this week. If you're going to break the cycle, don't just ask God first, repent quickly. You do something wrong, run to him and repent quickly. Run to him and repent. Acknowledge that it was wrong. Acknowledge that you were angry and acting in pride. Acknowledge that you did the wrong thing. God's not afraid of your sin. He's not, he's not afraid of it. He's not a fan of it. And he certainly knows how to fix it. But he can't fix what you don't acknowledge. Because he's not going to control your life. But he will lead your life when you surrender. Ask him first. Repent quickly. Ask him first and repent quickly. Here's the deal. Knowing that you sinned doesn't make your sin go away nor break the power of sin. If you want to break the grip of sin in your life, you've got to repent quickly. The Bible talks about it as confession. Confess your sins to God. It's this idea of staying with God. First John 1, 7 through 10 says this, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we can have fellowship with one another. And check this out. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if you confess your sin, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just, and he will forgive you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if we continue to claim that we didn't sin, if we don't acknowledge the fact that, no, that's that that missed the mark of God, that missed it. I, I, I made an error. I messed up. If we claim to not have sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word isn't in us. Friends, Jesus is looking for you. And he's asking, waiting for you just to come and say, I blew it, God. I blew it. And then he can fix it. Then he can cleanse it. Then he can wash it away. Then he can remove every ounce of sin and clean us all the way. I want to invite the worship team to come and join me 
And I'm going to ask those who are hosting today in a section, if you would begin to prepare the communion elements. We're going to go into a time just in these last moments together of of worship and, and reflection. Reflection and then some worship. Go ahead and begin to distribute those, those elements. As the tray comes around, there are two cups in each slot. The bottom cup has the bread. The top cup has the juice. If you would hold on to those, we'll all partake together here in just a minute. Romans 5 says this. For if by the trespass of one man, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, of the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass, one mess up, resulted in condemnation for all people, They messed it up. They had one job to do and they botched it. And as a result, sin came to all of us. So also, one righteous act resulted in justification for all people. For justice through disobedience, the one man, many were made sinners, that's you and me. We also, through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. That's you and me. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increases, grace increased all the more. Your sin can't outrun God's grace. There's no sin you can commit too big to not allow God's grace to fix it and cover it. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we listen to the words of this next song and we hold these elements in our hand, I want you to realize that in putting your faith in Jesus, life comes to you. Grace shows up. Shame doesn't shout anymore. It gets silent. The victim, that's not you. You get to live as victorious. Here in this moment, let's just take a minute and think on those things as we hear the words of this song. I love the words of this song. Because what God wants to do in you is a new work. The minute Adam and Eve recognized they were naked, they were alone, and they hid themselves, not only did God come looking for them, not to shame them, not to point out, not to help them realize that they messed it up. If you keep reading, the first thing God does, finds them, goes right to where they're at. And the Bible says he makes coverings of animal skins that are more permanent to cover their nakedness because their own attempt to cover it up and fix the problem didn't work. So God made a substitute. The Bible doesn't say it, but I believe that God found a lamb killed it, shed the blood and from that lamb's skin made coverings for Adam and Eve. 
Why? Because they ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. They took the fruit from the tree. And the commands of God, the law of God was you couldn't do that. They broke the law. Where there is no law, there is no justice. So God gave more laws to help them understand true justice. And then one day, he sent his one and only son to the world to live out and fulfill and to completely abide by the entirety of the law. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. God's son, the lamb of God. God placed him on the cross, pouring his blood out to cover and to remove the stain of sin forever. Friends, Jesus is known as the firstborn. God was willing to kill his first son so that through faith in him, he could have many sons and daughters. But he had to do something with the first. Jesus was the first fruit. Jesus was the tithe. Jesus was the one that God said, I'm going to do it to him so that nobody else has to deal with this anymore. Hear me. Jesus, the first fruit, was placed back on the tree. And because he was placed back on the tree, the curse that showed up because a fruit was taken from the tree is now made reversed through the power of what Jesus has done. Removing and reversing the power and the stain of sin forever. That's why you don't have to hide. Because Jesus has provided what you need to have right relationship with God. You to bow your heads, close your eyes. Here in this moment, if you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I feel full of shame. I feel a victim. And I am lost and I need a savior. I've been controlling my own life, trying to use knowledge and my own intellect and reasoning. But and today I just, I want to put my faith in Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for some of you, you're returning. And you want to surrender control of your life to Jesus and trust him to take care of your life. And you want to receive what Jesus did at the cross for you. Receiving that forgiveness. If that's you, would you just put a hand in the air? We want to pray with you. Thank you for that hand. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Praise God. Church family, can we all pray this together as just a prayer of commitment and surrender to the Lord? Say, Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for me. Thank you that he took my sin. He took my shame. He took my place. The punishment that was intended for me, you put on Jesus. Thank you for being my savior. I surrender my life to you. You be the Lord of my life. I give you my all. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for bringing me into your family as a son or daughter of yours. I love you, Jesus. 
Father, I thank you for all of my friends in this room. We are family of God. Lord, as a result, we can come to the table with a clear conscience, knowing not that we've never sinned, but our trust is in your ability to cleanse us, forgive us, and you made us right. Jesus, we come to this table because you made us worthy. It's the bread that represents your body, and it's the juice that represents your blood that cleanses us, not just covers us temporarily, but cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we're grateful for it.